Welcome to Season 2 of Antipod, a Radical Geography podcast in Sound Collective. We bring radical people and collectives together so that we can share knowledge, ask new questions, and sustain frameworks and methods that are underrepresented in the discipline. Antipod is an inclusive and interdisciplinary space. We listen to each other together. My name is DeAndre Smiles, and this is my co-host, Theo Hilton. This season, we're talking about COVID-19, carceral spaces, and abolition. Today's episode is in two parts. In the first part, we explore the uneven effects of state-supported and state-prescribed COVID responses, focusing on the experiences of someone who was arrested and incarcerated beginning in the summer of 2020. His narrative reflects those of many people inside and outside prison walls who bear the impacts of COVID's precarity. In the second part, we ask an anti-carceral organizer about how forced movement of people within and among spaces of incarceration has shaped and been shaped by the pandemic. We offer these guiding questions as we go through the episode. State responses to COVID in March 2020 invoke the image of locking down for protection from an existential threat. What does lockdown look like in a space that is already paradigmatically locked down? How did the movement of people, information, and illness overlap in the stories in this episode, and how do they not? And finally, how can we connect the relationship between state dismissal of incarcerated people's health early in the pandemic and the ways in which the state approaches widespread quotidian death in the present day? As we sit here in February 2022, it hardly needs to be said, but things seem like they are just getting worse with the COVID-19 pandemic. Every day we are bombarded with news about new waves and outbreaks of the virus, more infections, more hospitalizations, and more deaths. COVID continues to be a major part of our everyday lives, influencing our daily activities and how we choose to, or choose not to, take precautions against infection from the virus. To put it into cruder terms, shit is crazy right now. Many people are surprised at where we are at. If you would have asked anyone back in 2020 where we would be with the pandemic in 2022, many people would have said that their hope would be that we would have returned to some sense of normalcy. But obviously that is far from the case. We are starting to see what happens when the state abrogates its responsibilities for public health and public safety. But for another group of people, this is all par for the course. More specifically, people in spaces of incarceration have been experiencing this lack of protection all along, and they could see this coming from miles away. Messaging in the United States and Canada has begun to shift towards treating COVID-19 as an endemic disease versus a pandemic, driven in large parts by higher rates of vaccination in these places. What this means is rather than attempting to manage outbreaks in a targeted manner, public health authorities will begin to focus more on severe cases, removing resources such as PCR testing for cases deemed to be more mild. For example, in British Columbia, Canada, provincial health authorities have already explicitly stated that they intend on shifting towards treating COVID like the common cold or the flu. Other leading health experts in the United States have taken similar views, stating that COVID will soon become something that we manage seasonally. However, the very real impacts of the pandemic rage on. On the day before Valentine's Day 2022, the BC COVID dashboard showed that the seven-day average positivity rate in the province was 14.6%. 
which is well above the positivity rate that indicates widespread community spread. There were similarly high numbers in the U.S. at the same time. My home state of Minnesota had a 14.170 day average positivity rate around that same time period, while neighboring Wisconsin was at 28%. That is to say nothing about the recent rise in pushback against vaccine, mask, and other COVID safety mandates such as the, quote, freedom convoys here in Canada. Within the walls of American prisons, things are similarly grim. Returning to Minnesota, a recent outbreak in a federal prison in the small southern Minnesota town of Wasika was one of the worst outbreaks in the country in December 2021, let alone in a prison in the United States. In that prison, 17.4% of the prisoners tested positive for the virus during that time period. In a Los Angeles County jail, healthcare workers alleged that deputies in the prison regularly defaced safety messaging surrounding COVID safety measures and engaged in misinformation surrounding vaccination, such as claiming that the vaccines carried material from dead babies. How did we manage to get to this point? Well, we have to take a step back in time in order to see how the conditions were set for these contemporary events to take place. Let's go back to very early March 2020, at the point where we realized that the COVID-19 pandemic was deadly serious. In early 2020, word began to spread in the United States about a respiratory virus called COVID-19. First detected in China, the spread of the virus seemed far removed from public attention and consciousness. In the U.S., but over a number of weeks in late February and early March, things would rapidly change. As reports of COVID cases emerged first in Seattle, then to other large cities, and then across the country, a picture of the virus's already existing community spread came into view. Universities closed, then elementary and secondary schools. Soon, many workplaces closed their doors and went online, as public health guidance recommended masks, hand washing, and total avoidance of most human contact. In March 2020, I was back home doing dissertation fieldwork. COVID-19 was in the background of my mind as I flew from Columbus, Ohio to Minneapolis, but it was as soon as I got off of the plane that it grabbed my full attention and didn't let go. As soon as I stepped off the plane in Minneapolis, I got an email from my university saying that they were banning university-sponsored travel and that any travel that was going on at the time would need to wrap up. Four days after that, I was conducting interviews via phone rather than in person as COVID reached Minnesota. Today, Governor Tim Walz ordered Minnesotans to stay at home for two weeks. This is the latest step to slow the spread of COVID-19 and give our hospitals a chance to prepare to treat the most at-risk patients. The executive order issued today takes effect on Friday and runs through April 10th. The governor is also extending bar and restaurant closures until May 1st and ordering schools to stay online until May 4th. We'll explain much more in just a moment about what makes stay at home different from what we're already doing. Today's announcement comes as similar restrictions in Wisconsin took effect this morning. Several days after that, I was on a plane back to Ohio where I would go home to my apartment and then promptly stay in my apartment for several weeks with my wife and my cat, only venturing out to get food and supplies. Stay-at-home orders were here. We were under lockdown. Dr. Acton just signed a stay-at-home order for all Ohioans. Other states have referred to this as shelter-in-place. We prefer stay at home. Uh, either one, it's, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. 
and that order will be up online shortly. You'll have the opportunity to look at it. But let me just start by saying that there really is nothing in that order that we have not already been talking about. There's nothing in that order uh, that I have not been asking you to do for the last week or so. A media narrative emerged depicting COVID as an existential threat, but one that we would get through by staying home from work and school and utilizing expansive, federally subsidized unemployment benefits, childcare tax support, and insurance discounts. Doing our part to help stem the tide of COVID infection became a national project of sorts, between the messaging urging us to work together to protect one another, alongside the rapid mobilization of manufacturing capacity to create needed supplies, ranging from hand sanitizer to masks to ventilators. It seemed like we were on a wartime footing, something our leaders were not shy about encouraging. The situation was serious, but the optimism was bright. If we just worked together, eventually COVID would go away and we could go back to normal life. Contrasting this image of measured response and opportunity for self-imposed lockdown, 2020 marked for many a time of heightening vulnerability and acute awareness of state negligence and misinformation. Many cast as essential workers continued to clock in and face grueling hours, insufficient wages, and poor treatment in the face of skyrocketing precarity both to COVID infection and to escalating gendered, race, and class-based targeted violence at work, on the street, and at home. Not coincidentally, people bearing the brunt of this particular precarity occupy the same communities with outsized experiences of environmental injustice, underdevelopment, and excess incarceration. COVID's amplification of pre-existing societal inequalities is especially apparent for people caught up in systems of incarceration. Lack of recourse to due process, access to information, to physical resources, to community, and to spatial stability characterize experiences of incarcerated people generally. In the next section, we hear from a fellow leech-like band Ojibwe citizen, my cousin Stan, actually, who was unjustifiably detained and incarcerated in Minnesota during the summer of 2020. It was August, you know, the pandemic had just kind of got started. No, the government hadn't quite shut down yet. Everything was still running like it was, except in some instances, the the county jails weren't taking people on some warrants because they were trying to limit the population in, in, in jail for once. Mm-hmm. This is already months after something happened. And I remember, um, I, wasn't until I, I don't know, it might have been around the time I was in there, but I think it might have been after that. But I'd been in jail. I was in. Aiken County Jail for August 20th till January 16th on these charges and and I guess the entire time we were in there I mean these people weren't taking any I mean there was no hand they wouldn't allow us to use hand sanitizer but I mean there was no masks in the jail nothing I mean, it was already August of 2020. 
and they still didn't have anything in there till far after I started raising hell in, in the county jail. In Aiken, it's not that big of a jail, it's a small jail. And you know, they were, there was one or two uh, COVID cases, One, but only one COVID case came after the guy was in jail, so he had to have caught it from the jail guard. So now this is the problem that happened with every jail in the United States, which is why the American Civil Liberties Union took up a Uh, they filed a lawsuit for all the prisoners in the state of Minnesota and every other state that has been, that were subjected. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you caught COVID or not. It's the fact that the, the people that were supposed to, because anybody that can't feed themselves, anybody that can't physically, you know, cook their own food and whatnot, that makes them a vulnerable adult. So every inmate in, this, in anywhere, in any jail, any prison, is a vulnerable adult. So their vulnerable adult means is that we can't physically take care of ourselves. We physically can't protect ourselves. So after several months of fighting my case and, you know, getting run around by the system as usual, by the jail system as usual, uh, I think it was October, about four weeks after I was in there, you know, most of us, Things were all right, but now all of a sudden they're talking about government, you know, the government shutting down now at this time. But they had already shut down, I think, because I wouldn't they do that first CARES Act. Uh, it was in March or April. April, I don't know, maybe it was April or May of 2020, I forget. But anyway, so. I noticed that these guards weren't taking precautions when I was going in there. So I started talking to the other guy and I was like, <clears throat> I was like, you see these people? I said, I said, they're supposed to be, I said, I heard on the news because we were watching TV and now on the news it says that, you know, uh, essential employees, you know, should be getting, you know, tested every few days or whatever to make sure, you know, they're not, uh, don't have symptoms and aren't passing it on to, you know, to people that have to, you know, go to grocery stores or whatnot. I asked them, I asked, uh, I asked them, I said, so, I was like, I was like, hey, that, how long has that guy been down here? Because all of a sudden they moved me from one jail cell to the next and all of a sudden I hear that, oh, there's a guy that they got, there's a COVID case, they, they had to put him in one cell block all by himself. Da, 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 da. I'm like, you know, and I'm listening from, he came from another part of that jail, so I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I kind of didn't hear the details. You know, I thought he just came in, so I didn't think of nothing of it. Then after about a week, I'm talking to one of the, <clears throat> they called the Swampers, and uh, I was like, yeah, I said, Where, where's that COVID guy? He said, oh, they moved him back upstairs. I said, what do you mean back upstairs? They said, oh, yeah, that's where he came from. And we were all upstairs. He said, everybody else uh, tested negative. He said, they said, except for him. I was like, how the hell did only one out of all you guys up there is a test? Because it's, it's an open dorm. It was an open dorm setting where he was at. 
and contracted the COVID and he had already been in there for uh, several weeks. So one of the jail guards got him sick, but only him. So they managed to cut it off at the one guy. But that's just an example of several months into the pandemic. Pandemic starts in March. It's already October, and this Aiken County still isn't taking the proper precautions to keep inmates safe. As COVID concerns compounded over the year, people who were incarcerated often had to rely on loved ones and other word-of-mouth sources to learn about what was happening. Many quickly realized that they were at the whims of policymakers, prison administrators, and correctional employees alike when it came to decisions and priorities around mitigating the virus's spread. Stan's story reveals how incarcerated people's own health and safety, along with many low-wage workers outside the prison, were minor considerations in this planning. As months dragged on, news became more dire. In November, I'm texting my mom, and all of a sudden my mom is telling me, November and December, that, oh, uh, there's there's, uh, people... Because my brother's in Stillwater. My younger brother, Jalen, is in Stillwater Prison. Has been there you know, for a while. But anyways, he's telling my mom that they're carting people out of the out of Stillwater Prison in ambulances, and they and, and they ain't coming back. And due to the fact of the prison system and how their rehabilitation isn't isn't rehabilitation, but by the way, that's another thing uh that i could go on about for a while but <clears throat> as far as what i'm hearing about stillwater because i'm like oh i knew it i was like they were trying to keep it quiet you didn't hear it on the news nothing but hundreds upon or maybe even thousands of, of the of the people that died here came from uh minnesota state prisons not necessarily the county jails because the county jail ships people out or cuts them loose or, you know, does whatever they can in order to save in order to kind of cover their own asses, but it doesn't always work out that way. Because they still don't care about our lives. The only lives they care about are theirs. So uh, despite that, they're, they're supposed to be caring for the inmates. Instead of they turned it over the years, they turned it into a struggle with the inmates. So in, the, in, the, in December, I finally get the money to pay my bill. And oh, and I, I heard at first my mom and my brother first started telling me this stuff that happened out of out of Stillwater, which hadn't was well hadn't been on the news, nobody was hearing about it until uh just before Christmas. And finally the news news places started, you know, somebody the word got out, you know, the ACLU probably is how it happened. But I finally got on the news. There was one reporter that I started finally reporting because now, you know, they're reporting old folks' home deaths, uh, cases, positive cases. But the Department of Corrections was keeping it airtight as they could, except people started dying. So then that's when they lost control of their airtight thing and trying to keep it uh, out of the news wires. But finally it was on the news that, oh, yeah, there's an outbreak in Stillwater and, and various numerous other uh, – state prisons because the only thing I said, the only way I could have gotten there I said, was the jail. I said, I know that for a fact. So I told my mom, I said, tell Kaylin and, you know, tell them guys in there, I said, they need to start keeping track of stuff. 
Stan's experiences around COVID exposure and misinformation resonate with a larger pattern for incarcerated people around the U.S. Io Brooks, a policy associate at the City University of New York's Institute for State and Local Governance, connects this narrative to her research concerning prison transfers and their broad impacts. My sort of perspective on this crisis and watching it unfold, you know, in in our own lives and also within the prisons has really been informed by um, this work that I've, the work that I do that's solidarity based is really uh, kind of centered around relationship building and community building. And so my perspective has been informed by uh, the, the folks that I know, a small number of people who I feel a uh, deep friendship um, with and uh, have over the course of this year uh, sort of experienced what it's experienced, what it's like to be in support of somebody who is um, experiencing COVID in prison and um, had many conversations with um, those with those folks about their their experience um, and their analysis of how COVID has played out behind bars. So uh, so certainly just to say that my um, kind of experience of this past year or my reflections on this past year are really rooted in my own experience and the experience of the folks I've been in, the people I've been in community with, um, and uh, less so, or not so much that these are sort of, this is a rigorous quantitative study of of people X, Y, Z. This is really about kind of what what I've lived and the analysis that I've heard from folks who are, who are living this past year um, in prison. And I think what I've really seen is that, you know, fever pitch is the perfect um, word to describe it. Through conversations with people inside and with others working in solidarity with incarcerated people, Io came to see how aspects of the COVID management crisis were in many ways consistent in prisons across the United States. She observed how concerns for incarcerated people's safety from COVID infection were antithetical to the logic of incarceration, as demonstrated both by the fact of people experiencing a much lower risk of infection at home, as was advocated by both prison reform and abolition-focused organizations beginning in spring 2020, and by the proliferation of measures that actually put incarcerated people at higher risk due to closer congregation. And remember, this was in 2020 when very little was known about the virus, except it was deadly and it was spreading fast. I think there's maybe, there's a few reflections that I've um, had over the course of this past year, working with folks and talking to them. And the first is that this crisis, you know, the state created the COVID-19 crisis in prisons. Um, in both uh, in both a sort of um, high level way in that everyone knew. Uh, I remember the very beginning of the pandemic, this is what conversations sort of centered around. We knew that congregate settings like a prison um, would have the potential to become deadly institutions, you know, in the case of a pandemic. And so everybody knew that having a prison in a pandemic is is setting, are setting up a situation where people's lives were going to be at great, at huge risk. And um, still the state refused to decarcerate or to think about ways to, um, you know, bring people out of prison. So on the most basic level, there wouldn't be COVID in prisons if there weren't prisons. I mean, and and it, it feels obvious to say, but I think important um, because, because all of the crisis that followed um, was because, came from a refusal to even imagine a reality where we wouldn't where we wouldn't have prisons um, and where we wouldn't be uh, forcing people into an institution that would become a death dealing institution. Um, but in even a more concrete way, the state really throughout the entirety of the crisis 
neglected to in institute measures, institute or enforce real safety measures that would protect the pe people who are incarcerated. Um, and I think that the kind of uh, litany of really absurd and awful policy um, is probably well known of how poorly prisons responded to this crisis, but um, everything from, you know, for the first few months of the pandemic, uh, refusing to allow people in prison to wear masks. Um, and so people were forced to uh, to not wear masks and to, you know, breathe each other's air. In spaces of incarceration and by extension spaces where people are targeted for incarceration, COVID's impacts were made much worse because of limited mobility. I think one of the things that we talked so much about and wrote about in um, our work in thinking on mobilities and, and transfers was the ways that transfers as kind of a mundane, uh, looking less towards the, the instances of spectacular violence or um, kind of the extremes or the, the moments that register in the public's eye that in sort of this, um, instead shifting our gaze to look more so at the kind of mundane quotidian, the everyday practice of moving people between facilities. Um, I, I feel like what we saw in that was that in, in looking at that process, these really deeply seated carceral logics about how it is that prisons operate and how they view the people um, that, they, that they hold and uh, really the ways that they will continue to expand and evolve in order to exist and to be able to, you know, to implement fixes like transfers to be able to exist, then in all of those ways, those things become really clear when looking at something as everyday as transfers. And so I think that's something that we've um, seen also in, in the case of the pandemic, that many of these, even moving, you know, even moving beyond transfers, that many, many of these kind of daily policies um, have been really sort of concretized and um, furthered in the face of the pandemic with really harmful impacts on the people that they um, that they impact the people who are incarcerated. Um, but certainly transfers are one of are one of those tools. So at a certain point in New York, there was a little bit of reporting about this at a certain point in New York, um, as prisons were, uh, you know, as the pandemic was really, um, as the crisis was expanding in New York State prisons and rates were going up and up, facilities, including the ones that I visited, um, were starting to test and seeing these really alarming, though in no way surprising, if you were talking to somebody who was incarcerated in those facilities, um, cases of people being positive, the state began to start to transfer people who were at risk, um, you know, particularly elders, to start to sort of move them around to try to uh, use this tool, this kind of everyday tool within the carceral toolbox to respond to the crisis and to move them away, you know, from the pandemic. And in reality, what this analysis that I um, that I'd read that a, a journalist whose name I should have and I can send to you after this, so that if we want to include it as a resource or whatever else. Um, but what they found was that that actually spread spread the crisis and um, basically created these pockets where there were lots of elders um, who were all at great risk and who, you know, eventually. Um, COVID was introduced into those facilities. And uh, in many ways, you could say they were put at greater risk because they had been shuffled, because they had been, been moved around and transferred around between facilities rather than, again, sending them home, which I know I've said like 500 times, but it's because it's so dang obvious that that is what you should do um, in this instance and always. Um, and so I think one of the things I've just you know reflected on is that way that these sort of everyday carceral practices 
um, like transfers have indicate have been the state has invoked these tools in the face of the crisis um, with the desire to really fix, you know, to fix or to stop or to like uh, quell this pandemic when so often those tools actually further further the harm and the violence and um, really they, that says something to me at least about the fact that you know there aren't there aren't really tools in a prison's toolbox to stop a pandemic. I mean there are tools to limit the harm absolutely and policies that should have been implemented but something like a transfer is not going to stop COVID in prisons. Not having prisons would stop COVID in prisons. Not having people in prisons would stop COVID in prisons. Um, and so, so I think, I guess for me, that just sort of furthered my, um, the analysis that we've came to together that, you know, these tools um, will never, there is no, it's not that they're good transfers, bad transfers, whatever, shuffling, shuffling people around in this pandemic won't solve the pandemic um, because these carceral tools are so embedded in how prisons operate. And um, really the solution is abolition and is sort of an abolitionist imagina imagination about how do we bring people home and out. You know, we need to throw these tools away is what I'm trying to say. Across the board, forced movement and mitigation of people and information became the key strategy for managing COVID in carceral spaces. Coercion and concealment characterized the dominant logics of incarceration and by extension, societies in which incarceration plays a major role. In this episode, we highlighted the ways in which these strategies predated the pandemic, but were amplified to a fever pitch, in the words of one interviewee, in the context of managing contagion. These rationales of whose life is worth saving or whose health, of whose perspective matters in deciding what to do to protect life, and how much we estimate the relative value of punitive measures versus life-saving interventions like sending incarcerated people home. In the next episode, we zoom into a discussion of how these measures have played out in terms of COVID spread, public health, and the real epidemiological impacts of the carceral state. That's it for this episode of Antipod. In the next episode, our co-hosts Asha Best and Carrie Freshor ask what it means to look at incarceration through a public health lens. What does the spread of COVID-19 in prisons make visible? And what this moment opens up for organizers. Thanks for your listenership. See you next time.